0: Tune in as we continue to update our podcast with informative talks and articles for Masons worldwide and those who would like to inquire within. So in this episode, we're going to focus on some articles from the Spring 2021 California Freemason magazine. And the theme of this issue is Refresh the Drinks Issue, Toasting a Spirited Masonic Custom." So the first article is In Good Spirits. For centuries, Freemasons have gathered in the spirit of brotherhood and camaraderie. We're saluting that legacy and the role that a good drink plays in deepening the connections between good men. Because, as the 18th century Masonic toast goes, the bonds of friendship always tighten when they're wet. At Refreshment. Raising a Glass to an Important, if Unofficial, Masonic Custom by Brock Keeling you can say my masonic career started over a beer begins arthur weiss a fifth generation freemason and the current grandmaster of the grand lodge of california he's recalling the first serious conversation he ever had about joining the fraternity it was during a business trip to louisiana at a ramada inn hotel bar that he learned about the community that would soon become a major part of his life weiss and two colleagues both masons had just finished work for the day and sat down for a drink before dinner that's when I decided to probe them for details about Freemasonry, Weiss says. Other Masons have a similar story. Matthew McComb, a past master of Novus Veteris Number 864, met his two closest lodge friends over gin and tonics. And Justin Dazzaritchi, a member of Liberal Arts Number 677, decided 20 years ago that he'd be a member for life while drinking martinis at the House of Prime Rib during the annual communication weekend in San Francisco. For many, the most cherished parts of Masonry exist outside the formal boundaries of the craft, and often over a drink. Indeed, once Lodge meetings are adjourned, a familiar custom ensues. Glasses clink, mirth swells, the Lodge is... at refreshment. That state encapsulates much of what Freemasonry is about. Fraternity, camaraderie, and friendship. All of which point back to the core Masonic tenet of brotherly love. After a year during which that kind of close, interpersonal connection was sorely missed, it's a reminder that masonry is more than just monthly meetings and a ritual practice. It's raising a glass with a lifelong friend, or making a brand new one. If the lodge room is where the connections of Freemasonry are formed, it's often at the afters that those bonds are cemented. That's certainly been the case for McColl, a nine-year member of San Diego-based Novus Vetris Lodge Number 864. Being at refreshment really goes beyond the walls of the lodge, McComb says. Together with Mark Nielsen and Chris Radcliffe, the three musketeers as they call themselves, the trio greet the at-refreshment hour with the customary g and T, a a nod to masonry's British roots. Theirs is a friendship that extends beyond the lodge. These are the guys I talked to before I proposed to my girlfriend, he says. It's a special experience as an adult to find people you can relate to and forge a deep personal friendship with. Says Daza Ritchie, It's a great way to be in a non ritualized, non stuffy setting with your fellow lodge members. It helped pull me into masonry's particular brand of friendship. In a million different ways, masons and lodges develop their own unique cultures while at refreshment. More often than not, that involves hoisting a drink. And while drinking is not in any official way part of Freemasonry, and the craft explicitly prohibits it in many instances, it's become an important tradition for many and a way to deepen the already strong ties between the members from uncorking a fine bottle of wine at a black tie gala to downing a shot and a beer at the watering hole around the corner. Masonic refreshment takes many forms. For Peter Acquit, it means heading over to Monk's Cellar, a restaurant near Aquila Lodge number no. 865 in Roseville outside Sacramento. During pre-COVID times, Acquit and his lodge brothers would decamp there after lodge meetings to break bread and offer toast. At Saddleback Laguna No. 672, members formed an unofficial club called Low 12, a cheeky riff on High 12, a Masonic lunch group that meets at noon, which gathers after Lodge meetings to keep the party going. The Downtown Masonic Lodge No. 859 adjourns to Invention, one of the oldest bars in Los Angeles, which just happens to be on the third floor of the Los Angeles Athletic Club where the Lodge meets. San Francisco's Logos Lodge No. 861 has its own special punch recipe that members partake of following Lodge business. And then there are many examples of top-drawer dinners with top-shelf drinks that go above and beyond these casual apres-lodge gatherings, like the blowout seven-course St. John the Baptist feast held each summer at Conejo Valley Number 807. At Malcolm's Novus Vetris, members hold a quarterly convenus where they wear tucks and tails and eat by candlelight. It harkens back to an older time, a bygone era of old Masons when they wore that sort of thing, he says. Such hat tips to the past help connect the Masons of today to the festive practices of yore. In fact, in 2014, Grand Lodge issued guidelines to help Lodges experience our heritage by temporarily returning to the days of old by recreating schematics from 18th century table lodges. In these early gatherings, members sat around a horseshoe-shaped table with the master at the head as they wined and dined. The meal would pause when the senior steward called the brothers to labor to observe the degree work. During a break or at the degree's conclusion, the meal would resume with the junior warden calling the lodge back to refreshment. Another example of masonry's formal side can be seen in opulent festive boards like the one at Anchor Bell No. 868 in Los Angeles, where reveling members in black tie sing the Lodge's own sea shanty and drink rum punch. It's also seen at Prometheus No. 851, whose version of a festive board is a white tie event held at the University Club, a jaw-dropping two-story brick Victorian mansion atop San Francisco's Tony Knob Hill. It is befits such a setting, the members of Prometheus take their post-Prandial in style, with single malts and bottles of Napa and Sonoma wine poured freely. Just don't call the Masons a drinking club. Since the Brotherhood was officially formed in 1717 when a handful of lodges joined together as the Grand Lodge of England inside the Goose and Gridiron Tavern in St. Paul's Churchyard, Masons have had a fraught relationship with alcohol. Even by the standards of early 18th century London, those lodges were known for their fondness for drink. A famous satirical engraving from 1736 by William Hogarth, a Freemason, depicts a debauched street scene featuring a pair of Masonic officers staggering out of a pub. Right or wrong, a boozy reputation took hold. As a result, the fraternity has since held a firm line on alcohol in the lodge. In fact, drinking is prohibited at lodge meetings and in lodge rooms. Until 1989, California Masonic temples weren't allowed to serve booze in their dining halls. Other stipulations remain. No lodge funds can be used to buy alcohol, though it can be bought and donated by a member. That attitude is reflected in the first Masonic cardinal virtue, temperance. The idea was to prevent an overserved member from breaking his solemn oath, you know, in vino veritas. Today, temperance is as much about respecting the sanctity of the lodge as about spilling the beans. From the Mes- beginning, that meant towing a narrow line, as early Masonic lodges frequently met inside pubs or taverns. Those early forebearers would conduct their meetings above the bar and then later, after wrapping up business, retire downstairs for dinner and drinks. Like most lodge activities, these moments of gastronomic gaiety worked to build Masonic Brotherhood, so long as it was kept within reason. That responsibility traditionally has fallen on the junior warden, who is charged with maintaining order while the lodge is at refreshment, and who often organizes the purchase or donation of alcohol. Lodge minute books from the 18th century are full of examples of fines levied by the junior warden against members who forgot themselves and took part in less-than-stellar behavior around the table. Nowadays, such fines are forbidden. If a member does overindulge, the junior warden simply pulls him aside to let him know he's cut off for the evening. Above all, the junior warden's role at refreshment isn't that of a lodge's officer Krupke, but to make sure that social activity, and all it encompasses, moves along swimmingly. That isn't just a relic of Masonry's tippling past, it's also a gesture to those who don't drink. For sober brothers, or members who just don't prefer it, Accurate, for example, eschews booze during social gatherings, preferring iced tea with a squeeze of lemon. The storied halls of Freemasonry are welcome dry spots. Similar to Alcohols Anonymous, Freemasonry relies on fellowship to foster growth and has no political affiliation. In fact, both groups use the equilateral triangle as an important symbol. One place where the craft and the bottle do meet is in the custom of offering a toast, or, as is often the case, many toasts. In the out-of-print tome A Selection of Masonic Songs, published in 1975, and full of ancient salutes to drink, the brethren would sometimes sing, coming, 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 sir, the waiter cries, with a bowl to drown our care. Verbal tributes vary from lodge to lodge, and they run the emotional gamut, from earnest and profound to bawdy and bold. Take, for example, this one from the 18th century. Charge, brethren, charge your glasses to the top. My toast forbids the spilling of a drop. At Oakland's Academia Lodge number 847, the monthly festive board, called the Agape, is serious business. Held inside the swank library of the Oakland Scottish Rite Building, members dress in white tie and gloves, with officers wearing the gauntlet of their station on their sleeve. The recitation of toast from memory is a highlight of the evening, says past Lodge Master Paul Adams, at the queue of a master of ceremonies, the toast giver slings his napkin over his shoulder and offers his salutation, followed by the thunderous crash of drained firing glasses, heavy shot glasses essentially being thumped on the table. The act of toasting provides a way for the Lodge to formally and good-naturedly honor members, friends, and founding fathers. There can be a toast to the country, a toast to the Grand Master, and a toast to the Master of the Lodge, says Weiss. There's also a toast to absent brethren, a toast to visiting brethren, and even a toast to the ladies. At certain kinds of gatherings, these can add up. At Adam's Academia Lodge, for instance, there are usually seven toasts. At Conejo Valley's annual feast, there are eight. Our members know better than to put too much in their glass, Adam says, because if you drink seven whiskey shots, it's not good. So crucial is toasting to the Masonic experience that drinking vessels have become a part of many lodges lore. Some halls still possess ornate Masonic punch bowls made of ceramic or pewter and embossed with Masonic symbols and emblems. Other lodges, like McComb's Roseville Group, use metal tankards, while the aforementioned Prometheus Lodge feast in San Francisco involves passing around a tig, a three-handed sterling silver loving cup, which each brother holds and is then made to answer a question posed by the master of ceremonies, intended to prompt deep self-reflection. Many other lodges have special firing glasses or cannons used to punctuate a speech or toast. For all, many, many rituals centered on these time-honored traditions, masons point out that drinking itself plays only a supporting role in times of refreshment. Instead, it's the one-on-one connection men experience at these lively moments of leisure that keeps their tradition alive. It affords members new and old a chance to enjoy the social side of Freemasonry while meeting each other on the level. Being at refreshment, according to Daza Ritchie, shows that Freemasonry isn't all drudgery or old guys in suits, but interesting people who really enjoy one another's company. Weiss, who has played MC for Conejo Valley's St. John's Day Feast for most of the past 25 years, joined the Freemasons in part because he had relatives in it, but what got me hooked and kept me coming back for more were the centuries of history and the character of the individuals I met along the way, he says. Surely, that's worth raising a glass to. Toastmasters. Meet four Masons who embody the spirit raising potential of a good drink. The Dive Master. A SoCal Mason shares a beloved family tradition, a good drink, by Kelsey Lannan. John Grondorf will be the first to admit that for a good chunk of its patrons, the Craftsman Bar and Kitchen isn't the main destination. Located a block from palm-studded Ocean Avenue in Santa Monica, it's one of many establishments that benefit from the magnetism of the Santa Monica Pier, Dogtown, and nearby Venice Beach. Rather, he says of the watering hole, it's the place you go before and after. That suits his proprietor just fine. Grundorf didn't think he'd be spending quite so much time there himself. As a former head bartender for Hyatt Hotels, he'd spent his career traveling the country building cocktail menus and training bar staff for the multinational corporation. But over the past eight years, he's traded the jet-setting life for a well-worn spot behind the bar. It's a comfier workplace anyway. Grondorf initially made a small investment in the business during its previous life as a gastropub called The Yard. But in 2013, the business was about to go under and needed a lifeline. I got a call from the guys who worked there, Grondorf says. They're like, well, we were told you're the one to call now. They called the right guy. Grondorf quit his job, bought a majority stake in the founding business, and became managing partner. It was really simple, he says. I had a corporate background and jumped right into doing my own thing, which was a lot more fun. The fact that he'd grown up in the industry didn't hurt. Until 2011, Grandorff's mother and stepfather ran El Gallo Pinto, a Nicaraguan restaurant in West Covina that was lauded by the late food critic Jonathan Gold. And his grandparents ran a separate club-style place called The Overtime in Glendora. They loved the atmosphere so much, they had a full-service bar built into their home. We would have family parties, everything at the bar, Grandorff says. They had a huge house, but I don't think we ever hung out in other rooms. With that in mind, Grondorf set to work revamping the funky beach haunt into a place that felt authentically local, but inviting enough to appeal to out-of-towners. Eventually, Grondorf landed on what he lovingly terms a fine-diving aesthetic. We are as close to a dive bar as you can be in Santa Monica, he says. In March of 2013, the yard reopened as the Craftsman Barn Kitchen. The name was a nod to both the arts and crafts architecture that his hometown of Pasadena is known for, and to Freemasonry. Grundorf joined Santa Monica Palisades No. 307 in 2006, and has furnished many of his lodges' gatherings with food and drinks from the craftsman's kitchen. To be able to give back, it's an honor for me, he says. I wish I could do more. The bar's decor tacks toward the personal. Signs inherited from his grandfather's supper club feature prominently, as does a James Dean mural spray-painted by L.A. artist and friend Jonas Never, a tribute to the film Rebel Without a Cause, scenes of which were shot a short walk away at the pier but the pub's most personal connection can be found behind the bar. It was there, over drinks, that Grandorf struck up a friendship with the woman who would eventually become the craftsman's first bartender. In 2018, they married, and like his parents and grandparents before him, John and Kelly Grandorf now run the operation as a family business. The Harmonizer Winemaker Carl Lehman on Seeking Life's Perfect Blend by Anya Soltero Carl Lehman's career-defining revelation came, as it should, over a glass of Cabernet. It was 1997, and Lehman, who would go on to make his name as one of Napa Valley's premier winemakers, was a chemistry student at the UC Berkeley, part of an international team sequencing the human genome. Sharing a bottle with several colleagues, he was struck by the similar ways each person described the wine. Was it just a great bottle of Cab, he wondered, or was there a genetic component to their shared experience? You can look at everything we consume as having a shape on the palate that everyone can agree upon, he says. Despite his colleagues' diversity, their shared genetic traits likely meant that they physically experienced the sensation of drinking wine the same way, he speculated. It was a scientist's attempt to explain the ineffable lure of a great bottle. For Layman, pairing his two greatest passions, chemistry and wine, has yielded some robust results, leading him into the rarefied era of premier California winemaking. That journey took him to UC Davis's storied viticulture department, and eventually into Sonoma and Napa Valley's vineyards, including a season at the Folie Adieu, working under winemaker Scott Harvey, who introduced him to the physically demanding work in the cellars. After graduating, he moved on to Stags Leap, one of the Valley's top producers, and then to Storybrook Mountain Vineyards. I was exposed to excellence from the very start, the top of the industry, Lehman says. After overseeing the highly successful 2004, 2005, and 2006 vintages for Storybrooke, Lehman teamed up with a fellow winemaker to found Vellum Wines in St. Helena, where they aimed to develop a great Bordeaux-style wine. After rallying investors, they focused on the British market, sending Lehman to crisscross Europe and meet with winemakers and merchants. His efforts would pay off, as Vellum's 2012 Cabernet received a 96 score from Decanter magazine, and the first of three straight silver medals from the Decanter World Awards. Despite critical acclaim, the economic pressures of running a high-end winery proved to be too much, especially after the 2016 Tubbs fire, which demonstrated much of the wine country. The power was out, and we were watching a 100-foot flame from across the vineyard, Lehman recalls. So I thought, let's open the best. He uncorked a bottle of 1970 Chateau Mouton Rothschild and watched the fire approaching from a few miles away. His last year of production was 2017. Lehman has since turned his attention to wine consulting work, lecturing around the globe, including in China and Russia. Getting away from the day-to-day grind of winemaking also allowed him to pursue Freemasonry, which he'd learned about from his grandfather and other relatives. His godfather, a Maine Freemason, referred him to Yount No. 12, where Lehman was raised in 2017. Not surprisingly, Lehman gravitated toward the Lodge Kitchen, taking over as de facto chef de cuisine and Lodge sommelier. I aim to boost the morale of my brothers and want it to be the best possible and most enriching experience they can have, Lehman says, of lodge dinners, which he prepares for as many as 70 fellow members. In 2018, he was named his lodge's Mason of the Year. In both masonry and winemaking, Lehman says, balance is the key to harmony. It's a mantra he's tried to live by. If you're not a complete person, settled and connected, others will sense that about you and won't connect you on the same level, he says. The wisdom of Masonry is self-fulfillment. It's taking the sum of all your parts and becoming the best person you can be, then going out into the world and being the best version of yourself for others. The Salonier, At Club 50, Philippe Milgram gathers Masons for a Taste of the Good Life by Lindsay J. Smith Three triangles rule Philippe Milgram's life. The first, given Milgram's membership in Valley de France No. 329, a francophone lodge in Los Angeles, is embodied by the Masonic tenets of brotherly love, relief, and truth. The second, the Vintners' Triad, relates to his life's work importing wine. To have a good wine, you need good soil, a good winemaker, and God, Milgram says. Connecting those two is a third holy trinity, nourished by both Freemasonry and fine wine, one's stomach, one's palate, and one's mind. That tripartite enrichment is the goal of Club 50, a monthly luncheon Milgram host for wine and conversation-loving Masons. Club 50 was originally established in France in 1981 to help strengthen the bonds of friendship between brothers from different Masonic obediences. France is home to several Masonic bodies with varying rules and regulations. Today there are chapters of the club worldwide, including the Los Angeles group Milgram Help Launch, which is open to all Master Masons. Like the salons of the past, members are treated to a guest lecture on a different topic over good food and fine wine, a simple way to have a good time, Milgram says. Past lectures have covered subjects as diverse as caviar, gemology, masonic history, philosophy, and art, given both by masons and by outside experts. Only two things, religion and politics, are off limits. One popular yearly lecture is by the painter Jaina Gershman, sometimes combined with an outing to the Getty Museum where she works. Another is presented by Milgram himself, in which he explores the subject he knows best, wine. The French, we are born directly in the barrel of wine, he says with a laugh. Soon after Milgram arrived in California in 2001, he began importing and promoting several French wines that he loved back home, eventually expanding to other European labels. Today he represents some 30 vineyards and is a member of a number of wine industry societies, none more colorful than the Confrere du Sabre d'Or, an international society that celebrates sabrage, the art of opening a champagne bottle with a saber. Milgram is the American ambassador of the Confrerie, which means brotherhood, but isn't associated with Freemasonry. The society is similar to Club 50 in its focus on food, drink, and fellowship. Milgram explains. In the two decades he's been in business, Milgram has seen the American wine drinker's palate evolve significantly. Before, people asked me for a Cabernet or Merlot, he says. Now if they ask me about a blend, they know the difference between the Pinot in France and the Pinot in California. That education has had a macro-level effect, popularizing wines from all over the globe, but Milgram sees it at work on a more intimate scale, too. It's more enjoyable when you know what you drink and where it's coming from, he says. That's the approach he takes in his Club 50 lectures, teaching members about the grape, appellation, terroir, aging process, and other factors that give the vintage they're drinking its distinctive character. Each year, he travels to Europe to meet the winemakers whose labels he imports and learns all about the factors that influence their wine. Along with everything else, the pandemic put Club 50 on pause. Members tried meeting via Zoom, but it wasn't the same. What makes Club 50 special, Milgram explains, is not only the lecture, it's the friendship and the good food and wine that can't be replicated online. For now, he eagerly awaits the time when members can gather again over lunch in a bottle. Masonry is not only to nourish the brain and the heart, Milgram says. We're looking for better men, a better life. Food and wine is a big part of that. And our fourth person is the spirit guide. Whiskey Expert and Priest Steve Beal on Communing with the Divine by Lily Young. When was the first time you enjoyed whiskey? Who were you with? These are often the first questions whiskey master Steve Beal poses to guests at his famous tasting soirees. A brand ambassador for some of the world's most respected liquor companies, Beal's name is ubiquitous at industry events, competitions, and publications. But before he starts his well-rehearsed spiel on The King of Spirits, he makes sure to ask his audience about their first impression of the stuff. Unlike vodka or tequila and the painful binges often associated with them, most everyone answers the whiskey question with a story, whether it's about playing golf with their father or having a drink with the boss, Beale says. Whiskey is all about sharing stories. His reverence ascends beyond the top shelf. Whiskey has an oral tradition like masonry or religion, he says. There is a spiritual ethos to it. Beale's invocation of the divine isn't hyperbole. An ordained Episcopalian priest, he occasionally leads services at the famous Grace Cathedral in San Francisco, but his main calling in life has been spreading the word of Wiesbeth, the water of life. Since retiring five years ago as brand ambassador and whiskey master for the international distributor Diageo, owners of Johnny Walker, Lagavulin, and many others, he's continued to work in consulting and public relations for the industry. He's also been a judge for the past 27 years at the San Francisco World Spirits Competition, the largest, longest-running drinks contest in North America. Beal's spirits credentials are impressive. In addition to working as a drinks journalist, he's a member of the Whiskey Magazine Hall of Fame, a life member of the Keepers of the Quach Society, an honor bestowed by the Scotch whiskey industry, and a recipient of the U.S. Bartenders Guild Lifetime Achievement Award. However, Beale is best known for holding court at tasting parties, like the one he hosted in 2014 for Prometheus No. 851 at the University Club in San Francisco. Beale was raised at Santa Rosa Luther Burbank No. 57, and most recently affiliated with Table Mountain No. 124. Jordan Jelenic, past master of Prometheus, recalls that Beale spared no expense when it came to the lodge's education. The 10 tastings started with Johnny Walker Blue, at $189 a bottle, and went up from there. He walked away not just with knowledge of the whiskey, but a virtual picture of Scotland. He enlivens the spirits, Yellenick says. There are three typical questions posed to Beale during his tastings. How was whiskey made? That's a less interesting question, he says. The second is about the proper way to drink it, which he isn't prescriptive about. Beale himself gives a whiskey a deep sniff after the pour, then adds a half spoonful of water sniffs again, and swishes it in his mouth. The third and most important question is the why of whiskey, as in, why all the fuss? This is a spiritual issue as much as a social one. Beale points to whiskey's early medicinal use by European and Asian monks who employed the spirit in tinctures, mixing it with herbs and spices. The process of distillation quite literally removes the spirit from its host. What Beale explains as taking the secret of life and extracting it from the grain. It's a poetic echo of the religious that Beale sees elsewhere in the world of whiskey. Distilling is a process, he says. It starts with an apprenticeship, and you work your way up to master. Everything where people have passion for what they do follows a certain path. Masonry is also a good analogy, it's the story of human life. An Absolute Corker by Michael J. Ramos. Meet ye ancient order of noble corks, the screwiest Masonic club around. Shrouded in equal parts mystery and merriment, ye ancient order of noble corks is a bit of an outlier, even within the sometimes bewildering world of Freemasonry. Whereas the dozens of supplemental degrees available to Masons tend to stress or expand on the moral teachings of the crafts, the corks exist for one reason and one reason only, to have a good time for a good cause. The only thing we take seriously is how unserious we take the degree and ourselves, says Donald McAndrews, a 50-year mason in Virginia and the grand bung of the Americas, the equivalent of the Order's Grand Master. Yes, it's that kind of an affair. With titles like rather worshipful admiral, barely worshipful cook, and particularly worthy shipmate, the Order is a decidedly screwy cousin to Freemasonry. Fitting, given that its insignia is a corkscrew piercing a wine cork. During so-called cork lodges, the claret judge tends to be passed around liberally. More common in Great Britain, Australia, and parts of Europe, the cork degree is seldom practiced on our shores. It is governed here insofar as it is governed at all by the Grand Council of the Allied Masonic Degrees. By and large, a degree conferral is held only once a year during Masonic Week, typically in Virginia or Washington, D.C. And while it's still a mystery to most American Freemasons, the degree has a long and proud, if not exactly distinguished, history. Cork Lodges, sometimes known as cellars, have always existed to raise money for charity by taking donations around the festive board where ideally good and definitely plentiful drink are par for the course. For the uninitiated, the Cork Lodges degree ceremony includes many allusions to Noah's Ark, hence the nautical theme evident in the officers' titles. But the real highlight of a cork lodge is the board of corks. Revelers raise funds for the charity of their choice through the frequent and boisterous leveling of fines against fellow members for breaches of cork protocol. Among them, I'm told, is the requirement to keep a cork and corkscrew on one's person at all times like a challenge coin. Overall, even where local customs may take over, we universally agree that we come to eat and drink and for the opportunity to raise funds for charity," McAndrews says. Edgar Fenton, a resident of the Masonic Homes in Union City and a member of Los Altos No. 712, is among the lucky few California Masons who've taken the degree. And while he's mostly tight-lipped about its customs, he does recall it fondly. "'I can't give away the secrets, but I can tell you it's a wonderful time, with corks being waved about in the air everywhere you looked,' he says. "'It's not impossible for California Masons to receive the degree,' McAndrew says. Once we are able to safely travel again, he or another Grand Cork officer would be open to bringing a Cork degree out west. If travel and accommodations are provided, for more information about bringing the Cork degree to your lodge, email Michael Ramos at Freemason.org. A time traveling, history loving, continent hopping Masonic Bar Crawl. These taverns, alehouses, and pubs are practically overflowing with Masonic significance. By Dr. David Harrison. From the very beginning, Masonic lodges have met in taverns, public houses, and inns. Ever since, Masons have formed special and often historic connections with certain watering holes. Whether through hosting lodge meetings or just hoisting a pint there together, here are a few of our all-time favorites. Number one, the Spread Eagle in Lym. That's L-Y-M-M. Here in this quaint village pub meets Domeville Lodge number 4647. The lodge still convenes, as many 19th century lodges did, in a small room above the bar. In the old days, members traced the lodge set up in chalk and charcoal on the floor. Today, that requires merely rolling up the carpet and placing a tracing board in the center. Still, there's a certain charm to the experience, especially if you stay for a few pints downstairs afterwards. The Green Dragon, Boston One of the most famous taverns in American history, the Green Dragon is often called the birthplace of liberty, Dating from the late 1600s, it became property of St. Andrew's Lodge in 1764, when it was a hotbed of political fervor. Apart from the Masonic Lodge, led by John Hancock, Samuel Adams' Sons of Liberty also met in the tavern basement, as did several other secret groups. Plans for the Boston Tea Party were hatched here, and it was the departure point for Paul Revere's midnight ride. The Punch Bowl, New York, number three. It was here in 1761 that Masons met to re-establish the Grand Lodge of All England, meeting at York, also called the York Grand Lodge, a breakaway group that had appeared off and on since the early 18th century. Many individual lodges also met here in the years that followed, including the French Prisoners of War Lodge and the aptly named Punchbowl Lodge, which joined the York Grand Lodge during its brief revival. Number 4. The Devil Tavern in London. A location famous for both masonry and literature, the Devil Tavern was originally called the Devil and St. Dunstan for its proximity to the Church of St. Dunstan's. The tavern was home to the premier Grand Lodge of England during the 1720s, during which it was also home to several local lodges. In the 17th century, it played host to Ben Jonson's Apollo Club, which was counted among its members, William Shakespeare, Samuel Johnson, and the Freemason Jonathan Swift. Sadly the tavern was demolished in 1787. And Number five, the Masonic in Cheshire. Rather than form a lodge inside a pub, this watering hole in Cheshire evolved in the opposite direction. It started life as a Masonic Hall and later became a bar. Built in 1863, it was a meeting place for Ellesmere Lodge. By 1932, however, the lodge had vacated the building, the upper story was removed, and the building became a pub, keeping only the name and memory of its craft roots.